Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Melanie C. and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Tuesday, August 26, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book and we are on page 139, paragraph 1, which begins as presently the man. Today's readers are 12 Steps, Maura Z, 12 Traditions, Joanne L, the readers of the text, Helena R, Marie P, and Diane B. The reference number for yesterday, Monday, August 25th, 2014, is 6789. The OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, Our message is that people who suffer from compulsive eating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Maura Z to read the 12 steps. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, this is Maura Z. Covering compulsive overeating in Virginia. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, made direct amends wherever possible, expect them to do so it would injure them or others. Step 10, Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I pass. Thank you. I will now ask Joanne L. to read the 12 traditions. 
Good morning, Melanie. Thank you for your service. This is Joanne L., recovered in New Jersey. The 12 Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffer, <clears throat> suffers. Excuse me. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you. I pass. Thank you. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year, and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speaker, should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book on page 139, Paragraph 1, beginning with presently the man. And I will ask Helena R. to begin reading. Good morning, this is Helena. Presently the man did slip and was fired. Following his discharge, we contacted him. Without much ado, he accepted the principles and procedure that had helped us. He is undoubtedly on the road to recovery. To me, this incident illustrates lack of understanding as to what really ails the alcoholic and lack of knowledge as to what part employers might profitably take in salvaging their sick employees. If you desire to help, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it. Whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. Those who drink moderately may be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. 
drinking occasionally, and understanding your own reactions, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things which, so far as the alcoholic is concerned, are not always so. As a moderate drinker, you can take your liquor or leave it alone. Whenever you want to, you can control your drinking. Of an evening, you can go on a mod bender, get up in the morning, shake your head, and go to business. To you, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be to anyone else, save the spineless and stupid. When dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance that a man could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you may feel this feeling rising. A look at the alcoholic in your organization is many times illuminating. Is he not usually brilliant, fast-thinking, imaginative, and likable? When sober, does he not work hard and have a knack for getting things done? If he had these qualities and did not drink, would he be worth retaining? Should he have the same consideration as other ailing employees? Is he worth salvaging? If your decision is yes, whether the reason be humanitarian or business or both, then the following suggestions may be helpful. So here we are with um, a situation where the person writing this chapter is, had been trying to tell an employer about a particular employee as an example. And the employer refused to listen that this man was anything than weak-willed and spineless if he were to pick up a drink because he had gone to rehab and had been told that he was going to be fired if he drank again. But we, of course, know that because he's an alcoholic and has not been given the real solution, he is going to drink again. Um, so, And sure enough, this man did pick up. Then members of AA contacted him and he did accept the AA program and they are confident that he is going to recover um, and feeling a little sad that the employer did not give him that choice while he was still working. Um, so we're also being told that there's so much misunderstanding that, that people look at someone and the words that, I, that jumped out at me were, unless you are spineless and stupid or a natural annoyance that I myself, as a compulsive overeater who is unable to stop on my own power, could be just weak, stupid, and irresponsible. And I actually felt that way about myself for many, many years. Why was I so spineless and stupid? Why I was, was I so weak, so stupid and irresponsible? And you could add in the words for me coming from a religious point of view. I was sinful. I was gluttonous. Um, I was not to be trusted. I was irresponsible, and I was weak-willed. So this really does come from a real misunderstanding of how this person is sick. You know, the, the, suggest, the suggestion to the employer was, isn't he just sick? Shouldn't he have the same consideration as someone else who is sick and has to be given the right cure? I pass. Thank you. Who would like to comment on what was read this morning? Kim? Hi, good morning, Kim. Larry? Good morning. And I did hear Larry just before you started, Kim. Thanks, Kim, mm -hmm. and then Larry in that order. Continue, Kim, please. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. Wow, there's some valuable information in here because what is this chapter to? This chapter is to the employers. This is to people who do not have an alcoholic problem. So they're trying to explain to us, if you're looking at someone who, you know, this is what the world did. The world looked at me and saw what food did to me 
and wondered why I did it. All I knew was what the food did for me and wondered why the world didn't do it. So it's saying here, whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teeteller, you may have some very strong prejudice opinions, perhaps strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. To you, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be to anyone else, save the spineless and the stupid. So it's really important that we understand if we're a compulsive overeater or if we're a hard eater or we are the moderate eater. Because what is the moderate eater? The moderate eater is someone who can take it or leave it alone. The heavy eater is someone who might look like us in their behavior, but if a sufficient reason happens, they can stop or moderate. So if an employer is looking at their employees and they say, go to rehab or you're going to lose your job, and then that person straightens up, they think everyone can do that. And that someone who can do that, who simply can go to counseling or maybe in our case get a diet and get some dieting with support and stop, the reason they can do that is because they're not a real compulsive overeater. There's a lack of understanding. So what is that understanding? Who are we as compulsive overeaters? What makes you the real compulsive overeater? It means I have an allergy of the body, a permanent disability where I ingest certain substances or participate in certain behaviors, and I have what's called a phenomenon of craving, which only intensifies and never satisfies. That is my permanent disability. And if that is true, and I have the mental obsession, which means no matter how long I'm abstinent, I have a mind that's going to tell me, come on, Kim, it's been 30 days, it's been 30 pounds, you'll be able to do it again. It's going to make the good times better. It's going to make the bad times not as bad. And that mental obsession is always going to condemn me to go back to the food. And if I have both of those, it doesn't matter if my boss threatens me. I know the big thing with my parents in high school was, I'll buy a new wardrobe if you lose weight. And if I didn't lose weight, they would say, well, we're not going to get you this and we're not going to get you that. Because threats and rewards work for the moderate eater. They work for the heavy eater. So people who don't have that experience that we have, because it's what the food does for us, that allergy of the body, that obsession of the mind, that makes us the real compulsive overeater. And unfortunately, in our rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, we have this problem because we have people that come into LA who are moderate eaters and heavy eaters, and meetings are enough for them. Fellowship is enough for them. Getting nutritional information in a food plan is enough for them. And when they try to sponsor the real compulsive overeater, someone like me, they're going to confuse me, they're going to give me information that's not going to work for me, and ultimately they're going to, they're going to kill me. Because I cannot stay sober and abstinent on information that will help a moderator or a heavy eater. I need a spiritual solution. So for someone who doesn't have my problem, they're going to confuse the heck out of me. I know for me, for many years in Overeaters Anonymous, I thought step one said, I am powerless over food, therefore I can't eat. Step one says, I can't eat. Well, let me tell you, if you're a real compulsive overeater, if you have the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind, what step one is telling you is you are going to eat. Because the obsession of the mind will not allow you not to pick up that first bite, and the allergy of the body will be triggered and you will be binging your brains out. So this is important information for us because if, if non, non-compulsive overeaters do not understand what food does for us, but we as compulsive overeaters need to know what food does for us and that will allow us to work this spiritual solution. And with that, I pass.
Thank you. Larry from Chicago. Good morning, Melvis. Uh, Larry, recovered compulsive reader from Chicago. Thanks for your service. Um, yeah, the you know the spineless and the stupid. You know that was me. Um, at least that's how I was how I was looked upon, and how and also you know the the uh, the way I looked at myself. You know, and and we're in trying to educate the employer. You know that's that's not easy, and, and frankly, most people won't won't try to do that you know that's uh that's a real difficult thing to do because to recover from this disease the person has to experience they must experience a major transformation you know a major change where all manner of thought attitude and emotion have to change but you know and when that occurs of course the, the person's behavior will will miraculously seemingly in a miraculous way it will change as well you know, it'll be aligned with your with your higher power. But the, but the, the difficulty with educating the employer, it seems to me, is, is really the same, you know, that we face in educating the still-suffering alcoholic, the still-suffering compulsive overeater. And that is, you know, attempting to change, what, what we're trying to do is change a paradigm, you know, a way of thinking that believes, you know, that we're the masters of our own destiny, you know, by the marshalling of our own will. You know, that's that's what's advocated by employers. You know, it's the mentality that says, you know, just do it. I mean, think about your job. You know, just do it. Get it done. Do your job. You know, don't worry about anything else. If it's to be, it's up to you. Get it done. And this affliction doesn't respond to the marshalling of one's will. For if it, if it would, <laughs> don't you think that, that we would have, that we would have we would have gotten this done, you know. That we would have we would have overcome this affliction. For many of us, I mean, of course, we'd want to marshal our own will, you know. But we needed the aid of a power greater than ourselves. That's what I needed, and that's the education process that would have to happen with an employer. But in order to do that, you you, you have to be someone I think that has experienced this transformation, because if you haven't experienced this transformation. Educating an employer, I mean, you can't even convince yourself. I, I know that was the case for me. <laughs> so, so having the opportunity to, to give away something that, you, that I didn't have, you know, I had not experienced it. I continued to try to solve this problem by marshalling my own will. And invariably, I always picked up. I always picked up again. So how would I convince an employer that, you know, that, hey, there's this program, there's this 12-step program, and, uh, you know, and this is not, you know, th there's another way. Let me, let me share this with this employee. What are you going to share? I would have shared uh, something that I didn't have. Now, if I talk to an employer, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, you see, I share something far different, you know, with a different, with a different mindset. You know, there's, there's, there's the things that I, I, I don't know there's the things that I know I don't know. But how about the things, the vast, <clears throat> you know, that vast area is the things that I don't know that I don't know. That was this before I had this experience, before it was just concepts, it was just words on a page. Now I can educate the employer in a different way because I've had this experience. So with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you. Suji. 
I did hear you in the background. Are you interested in sharing? Hi, I am here, Melanie. <laughs> Thanks for hearing me. Blessings on you. And please heal me. Um, and heal you, too. You can do that with the help of your power, higher power. Anyway, it's Sue G. from Pennsylvania, now visiting in Massachusetts, the, the uh, place I lived for over 40 years, the, the ultimate trigger joint. I'm here helping my daughter to, to adjust to the next phase in her life without talking too much to her, so I need to talk to you guys. So um, this is very interesting. I, I love these chapters because, as I've said a million times, I started out in the Codependency Fellowship. And I'm thinking of the consultant that, that lived in my house when I was growing up. That was my dad. My dad was not addicted to food, and he wasn't codependent with me. My mother was both addicted to food, like a high-bottom food addict like me, and she was a very low-bottom codependent just like me, and we were kind of fused in our little dance. And I remember one day when my father gave advice, advice that later in my disease I would have found useless, but it helped me then. He said, the old standard for the non-addict, speaking to the addict, um, just push the plate away, he said. But then he said the thing that really helped me. He said to my mother, Ruthie, stop buying those cookies. Don't bring them in the house. (laughs) And there was the, the acknowledgement that there was something else that was contributing to my problem. Besides my disease, there was somebody who was fostering my disease and and uh, writing newspaper articles about it or whatever she did. And, and she was stuck in the same process. And I think that an aspect to this that, that I'm thinking of as we read and as people are sharing is this identifying in, which we do indeed need to do in order to decide to join the fellowship enough to get the help of the 12 steps. But, of course, identifying in isn't sufficient. It's necessary, but it is not sufficient for recovery. What is sufficient for recovery is working the steps and living in in steps 10, 11, 12, and 1. That's my version of it. Um, so, So if I identify in... If I identify in and I say, oh, the only people in the world who can help me are people with exactly the same problem that I have, one of, what is the risk and what is the benefit? Well, we'll start with the benefit because it's the sunlight of the spirit. So the benefit is that you don't feel alone anymore. But the risk is that I can say, oh, my God, I'm so sick and all these people are so sick that all there is in the world is sick. And in other words, I can become a victim of my sickness. I can define everything as sickness. It it reminds me of a time when my daughter, who was at that time diagnosed, probably not quite correctly, but she was diagnosed as bipolar, and she showed all kinds of aspects of it. And one day she came to me and she said, Mom, I can't practice the cello because I'm bipolar. And I said, no, you can't practice the cello because you won't do it. You're not willing. And and, uh, she didn't like that, but uh, I felt smug and uh, sanctimonious and like I had said the truth. And I had said something about the truth because she, she thought she was a victim. She was bipolar and she was a victim. And the thing about recovery is we all need to recognize we think we're a victim. 
once I recognize that I think I'm a victim, that is, I think I'm sick, I think I have the only disease in the world that that has other people who can understand me, I think I'm a victim and nobody cares about me, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm going to eat a worm. Once I recognize that's my my thought, then I can look at a question. Am I really a victim or am I a volunteer? And it is the volunteer that has to be relinquished. I may be a victim, but I do not need to volunteer for that position. I can take some responsibility about how I see myself. And then in this fellowship, I do not have to diss anybody. I do not have to diss people who do not have exactly the same version of this disease that I do. We all have the same disease. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. It's not a requirement that I agree exactly with everybody else's version of my disease. My disease is my disease. Now, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to be a victim and blame everybody, including other members of OA, or am I going to be a volunteer and decide what I'm volunteering for? And and I don't want to volunteer to be a victim. That that doesn't work for me. I want to volunteer to be a member of the human race guided by a higher power. Amen. Preaching to the choir again. I surrender and thank you for letting me share. I pass. Thank you. Would uh, one more person like to share before we move on? To the next page. Hi, this is Sarah. This is Penny C. Oh, great. Good deal. So we'll take Sarah and Penny before we move on. Good morning, Sarah. And what's the Good first initial of your last name? It's Sarah S., and I'm a recovering compulsive overeater from Northwest Florida. And I really related. I thank you all for your service. I really related to this reading a lot because I've been um, doing some new work in the first step about how this compulsive overeating has impacted my work and how, you know, I would get behind at work because I was, you know, obsessed with food. I When I was overseas in Afghanistan, you know, I was a chaplain over there and care packages would come in and it was like beyond my willpower to take some of the food to where it should go instead of eating it myself. It was horrible. And I never, um, I don't think I really realized um, how much this food thing impacted my work. And, um, And my employers, I've been very open with my colleagues and with my employers about my membership in Overeaters Anonymous. And, of course, they all do the thing of, what? You're not fat. How can you be? You don't need blah, blah, blah. And it's been very um, wonderful getting my colleagues and my employer on board with being supportive of my food choices and of my choice for recovery. Um, So I really appreciated the reading this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Penny. Okay, here I am. I was just 
wasn't wasn't unmuted. Uh, Penny C, recovered compulsive reader in Massachusetts, and uh, I just want to respond to that very first uh, paragraph. Whether whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. And I'm looking back to when I first came to Overeaters Anonymous, and because I had so much experience with all these diet groups, I think, that um, I became abstinent. But it was a diet. It was a diet. I knew how to diet, and it, would, and it, it, it served me well at first. And um, thank God I, I got right into the big book not long afterwards and remained abstinent because I was able to see what the doctor's opinion said that no other no other program had ever taught me that I had a disease that I had uh, an abnormal reaction to the first bite of my binge foods and so I myself I can remember before I understood the doctor's opinion and even in as a member of OA and abstinent myself, I I had prejudices toward the people in my life and people I would see out in the community who were who were overweight and and I would I would even um think that they they were spineless and, and maybe even stupid. After all, there is a way. Why can't they do it? Look what I've done. Um, I, I, I really needed an attitude adjustment. And thank God the steps helped me to do that. And I'm no longer there. Now my my attitude is one of compassion, love, and and wanting to help in the best way I can knowing that those people like me have a disease and they just have not had the good fortune, the blessing, the help of God to get to a way to be able to accept that they have a disease and that that there is a way out. And that's a spiritual way, a spiritual awakening. So I guess I'm telling on myself and I don't know that I ever, that I ever, um, admitted that before that that probably for a year i i as even as a member of oa had these prejudices and um and and was was um was was not understanding of other compulsive overeaters as i am today and with that i'll pass thank you penny and now i'd like to ask marie p to continue our reading as a second reader, starting with page 140, paragraph 1, Can You Discard? Good morning. This is Marie P. I'm a compulsive overeater, recovered. Uh, And thank you all for being there. Can you discard the feeling that you are dealing only with habit, with stubbornness, or a weak will? If this presents difficulty, rereading chapters 2 and 3, where the alcoholic sickness is discussed at length, may be worthwhile. You, as a businessman, want to know the necessities before considering the results. If you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? 
Can his past absurdities be forgiven? Can it be appreciated that he has been a victim of crooked thinking, directly caused by the action of alcohol on his brain? I well remember the shock I received when a prominent doctor in Chicago told me of cases where pressure of the spinal fluid actually ruptured the brain. No wonder an alcoholic is strangely irrational. Who wouldn't be with such a fevered brain? Normal drinkers are not so afflicted, nor can they understand the aberrations of the alcoholic. Your man has probably been trying to conceal a number of scrapes, perhaps pretty messy ones. They may be disgusting. You may be at a loss to understand how such a seemingly aboard above-board chap could be so involved. But these scrapes are gen- can generally be charged, no matter how bad, to the abnormal action of the alcoholic, of the alcohol on his mind. When drinking or getting over about an alcoholic, sometimes the, mod- the model of honesty when normal will do incredible things. Afterward, his revulsion will be terrible. Nearly always these antics indicate nothing more than a temporary condition. My past experience uh, with overeating and my employers is a little bit of a double bag. Uh, My first employer, when I explained to him how... uh, I was having difficulty, was very, very uh, helpful, told me he also had difficulty, and we shared the problem, and everything went smoothly. Then I had a different employee, employer, and tried to open up an OA meeting in the conference room where I worked for big business. And it started out okay, but then all of a sudden the conference room was no longer available and people stopped coming. And obviously the employers that I was working for then did not have the knowledge of OA at all. So it's very important to educate everybody, but the people that do the educating should not be people that work in that establishment. Somebody else in OA should take on the responsibility of going to the employers and talking to them and trying to bring about a correction. Because if if you go yourself as a compulsive overeater, you might be prejudiced against. And you don't want that to happen. We want to be accepted. We want to show that we are good employees and do good work. And that's our role. And somebody else needs to instruct the employer. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you. This is This is Bella. Can I share? Hi. Good morning, Bella. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you very much. My name is Bella, and I am a thankful, recovered, compulsive overeater. 
Thank you, Melanie, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. I love this paragraph, and it brings me to a very painful memory that I had uh, many years ago, uh, a, long a long time before I came into the program. I went for an interview for a job, nothing to do to, for nothing to do a job with beauty model or something related to beauty or how I look. And I went for an interview, and the lady that interviewed me after the interview tells me, "Oh, Bella, you know what? Um, unfortunately, you are not getting the job." And you look very, you sound very smart and very honest. You want to know why I cannot take you to the job? And I said, oh, yes, I would like to know. And she tells me, well, you sound very, very smart, and it sounds like you know the field, and you have a lot of knowledge and experience, but you are heavy and it's not professional, so I cannot take you to the job. I remember that it was very painful for me to hear it, and I remember I came home, and my first reaction was running to the food. And again, everything came up to me that I am a victim, and pity me, and I am angry, and I got very angry at her and very upset at her, and I was thinking, oh, now I want to show her how she is not right. It was very painful for me. Thank God, thank God that now I am in the program. I am so thankful to God that I didn't get the job. And I am so thankful to God that I know who is running the world and even though I didn't see that the job is not for me, most probably the job wasn't good for me, even though I don't understand. And now, thank you, God, I choose not to be a victim and not to, to take care of other people or any employer. Now, thank you, God, I am responsible for myself. And I know that it's nothing to do with my willpower. I know that I have a disease. I know that I have an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And my solution is a spiritual solution. And thank you, God, that today I know I have the tools to deal with frustration situation, painful situation, and thank you, God, that I choose one day at a time not to be a victim. Thank you very much for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Bella. Who else would like to comment on this page? Sally. Hi, good morning, Sally. And Rabia. Sally and Rabia. Thank you, Melanie, for your service this morning. Good morning. Good morning, a vision for you. This is Sally A., a recovered compulsive overeater in South Jersey. So I love this. I love these pages uh, because they really have some interesting um, uh, 
words to describe how I myself judged myself, and it even explains to me in some ways some of the things I was thinking for so long about myself. When it talks about on that last page prejudice, I, I think I prejudiced myself more than anybody else could have because I was so frustrated, and uh, my frustration level was just extremely high after so many years of trying to uh, basically get out of this um, box that I was living in with the chains around it in the bottom of the ocean. just literally could not get out. So when it says, can you discard the feeling that you are dealing only with habit, with stubbornness, or a weak will? I I know we're talking about the employer. We're, We're basically, you know, trying to educate the employer. But I'm looking at these words and it just smacks me in the face. Um, because I judged myself harsher than anybody could have about my own habit, my own stubborn, my stubbornness and my own weak will. Going down the page, it says, if you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? My goodness, could I, could I forgive myself for what I have done in the past? Can his past absurdities be forgotten? Can I really forget? the insane, absurd things I've done, because I have done some pretty absurd things. Can it be appreciated that he has been a victim of crooked thinking? Well, that pretty much just describes it like to a T. Crooked thinking. It just perfectly describes crooked thinking directly caused by the action of alcohol on his brain. When I read those words, I, I remind myself, I pinch myself, you know, the world seems to get it that an alcoholic has, uh, you know, has this fevered brain that it goes on to say in the next paragraph with such a fevered brain. But with the food addict or the compulsive overeater, they're still, you know, the, the committee is still out on us. They're still trying to figure out some of these things because they really don't seem to get. Well, they've given us in the DSM-5 a new diagnosis. Thank you, binge eating disorder. That's nice of you. They still say that we don't have an addiction. They don't consider it an addiction. They consider it something that can be altered. It can be cognitive behavioral therapy and, and, and other therapies. Therapies can fix us. And finally, your man has probably been trying to conceal a number of scrapes, perhaps pretty messy ones. It goes on to say that these scrapes can generally be charged, no matter how bad, to the abnormal action of alcohol on his mind. I am reminded of the many strange scrapes that I tried to hide, that I tried to conceal. It wasn't enough that I was concealing the insane eating disorder that I had, that I was trying to conceal from everyone around me. I mean, people used to say to me, you eat so little, because they don't know, because I was eating in secret. I was so such a sneak eater. I was not only a sneak eater, but as it describes the concealing of the number of scrapes I was in, I was also just a plain old sneak. I was just living in hiding. I had a secret world, just a totally secret world. And so when it talks about these, these scrapes, well, it just is nice to read here so clearly to describe here on a, page, a piece of paper with these words that it was all that I was the victim of crooked thinking because of my fevered brain, because of my, the allergy of my body to these food substances and the mental obsession. If it wasn't that I was thinking nonstop about the food, I was thinking nonstop about how can I get out of this mess 
How can I stop thinking about food? How can I control the insane urge that I want more, more, until it's all gone? Thanks for letting me share. With that, I pass. Thank you, Sally. Rabia M. Good morning, everyone. Um, this is Rabia, recovered post-COVID-Eater from New York, and I was so filled with gratitude this morning. Thank you all for being here. I'm sitting at the airport. I just put my mother-in-law on a plane after a 10-day visit, and it was mostly God-centered. By the grace of God and OA and these 12 steps, I am just overwhelmed with blessed awe. And um, and so great to plug in with all of you right here, right now. So, so yeah, not only were they messy ones, they may be disgusting. Um, you may be at loss to understand how such a seemingly above-board chap could be so involved. Well, I was a seemingly above-board chap. I was often a supervisor. I worked as a professional, and um, I would... You would probably consider that an above-board cap, unless I was in my disease and binging and my pockets were filled with cookies and candies and anything I could shove in, or I was hanging out in the kitchen, um, and I was a secret eater, you know, shoving food in my mouth or stuff in my pocket so I could shove it in, in the bathroom, and um, and then coming out and, and working as a professional, you know, so... Um, this disease is a very messy one, and and thank God for the recovery that 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 person, that very same person, that powerless over this seemingly hopeless state, just spent ten days in grace with you know I don't I'm not going to put a label on what kind of person she is because I love her and and um, it was the easiest time that we had together, and, and because I, I got my vision for your meeting every single morning, I, I started my day with the 10th, 11th, and 12th step, I, I've done service every day, thank you God, I love doing service, and um, and so this is a beautiful life, and I thank OA, I thank you, and I thank God, okay. Thank you. Who else would like to comment on what was read? This is Kathy in Boston. May I share? Yes. Good morning, Kathy. This is Sharon in Colorado. I'll have Kathy and then Sharon, and that should take us out to the end for two, three-minute shares. Thank you, Melanie, for your service, and thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, You know, I worked for the same employer for 35 years, and um, for most of those years, um, I did not let anyone know about my disease. The first 10 years, I didn't know I had a disease. Um, after that, as I got, I began to work the steps and <clears throat> experience periods of abstinence, um, uh, what I did instead, I was, I see now I wasn't entirely honest that I allowed my employer to know that I was a type 1 diabetic and because of that disease I needed to, you know, eat at certain times and I needed to take care of myself and manage my stress levels. 
Um, but I still had a lot of shame about my disease. Um, and I realized today that I was not really ever able to um, be honest about the fact that I was an, an addict in recovery. And um, it became necessary for me ultimately to cut back on my hours and then to retire at a relatively early age so that I could um, do the work of recovery that would keep me um, in recovery. Um, I I no longer could handle <clears throat> the pace and the stress that was required in order for me to continue to be successful, which I always was, but I was successful at great cost to my body and my spirit. Um, so I'm grateful today that uh, I'm here, I'm recovered, and um, I can help others uh, in um, working with addicts and also in helping people inform their employers in a way that's uh, more beneficial to both parties. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kay. I'm sorry, Kathy Kay. It's Sharon's turn now. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Melanie. This is Sharon. Did you? Uh, can you hear me? I can. Good morning. Oh, okay. Thank you, Melanie. Uh, this is Sharon, recovered uh, compulsive overeater in um, Colorado. And uh, <clears throat> I was just going to zero in. Can it be appreciated that he has been a victim of crooked thinking directly caused by the action of alcohol on his brain? And interestingly enough, I have many years in that program, and I didn't realize what it just states here, that uh, this prominent doctor stated that the pressure of the spinal fluid actually ruptured the brain. And, you know, I believed, I believed, but it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that alcoholism was an illness and that I had an illness and that my only solution was a spiritual solution. So I understood that, and yet here I had this other addiction that I thought completely the opposite about. I believe that that was something that I had to manage and take control of myself. And I, too, had been dieting from an early age because I'd been obsessed with food, weight, and dieting from an early age. And so I missed that completely, that I did have that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body when it came to the food and that certain foods would uh, screw up my brain chemistry just like the alcohol did. And <clears throat> so in my last job, I started out there abstinent and then through the process lost my abstinence. So they, um, you know, my employer saw me both ways and I worked at a front desk and we weren't supposed to eat at the front desk. So towards the end, that's what I was doing. And I got called on the carpet for it. And I hated the manager that called me on the carpet. I didn't like her. So, and she was overweight. So there I was judging her, you know. So the whole sick process that I saw there in myself and in others. And so I'm just so grateful um, that we're going through this um, uh, chapter because I can see it both from the side of the employer and from the side of someone who is is the sick person and how do you deal with a person like that? When do you have to let them go? But how do you deal with them without having all those prejudices? And that's what they're showing us 
in this chapter. And with that, I pass. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you. Thank you. That went more quickly than I thought. We do have time for one more person to share this morning. Would like to open it up for another person to share before we close? Hi, this is Deborah. May I share? Hi, Deborah. Yes, please. Thank you. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you all for your service. I just wanted to share that um, my, you know, my daughter is very, very overweight, and she is in a pro. She's not in a program yet, and she struggles. And here I am, just in the early days of recovery. And I just wanted to share something my sponsor said to me was that my family needs to see recovery. And as I'm walking in recovery, I can just trust that my higher power will do what he wants to do with my recovery. We look at people around us who are very active in the disease, and it's and it's painful for her not to see her get ahead in her job and sales because she would know that it's overweight, but I, I'm sure with everything the disease it is. And I'm just grateful for one day at a time. I'm not doing this. We can't do this for our families, per se. We're doing it because we want to be of service. But I'm grateful that my sponsor said that to me a while ago. Your family needs to see recovery. So um, that's all I wanted to share. And everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I have misjudged the time again with these short shares. Who else would like to share so that we can round out this with a couple more minutes share? Hello? Hi, good morning. Who is this? Anita J. Anita J. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Hello, all, and thank you, Melanie. I um, didn't think I was going to share, but it's brought back how I ended up in Overeaters Anonymous. And it's when I had a position assessing other people whether they were fit for work or not. And some of the people that I was assessing were in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm listening to them, and I'm getting very uncomfortable inside. And I remember clearly me, the sneak eater, when I, when I went home and the kids were there, I walked in and sat down, and I didn't care who was watching. I began shoving food in my mouth. And it just set me up to know that I didn't belong in the assessment side of that desk. I had a problem. I had a problem just like Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I just, just telling you that, that little piece. And um, I was just so grateful that working there, who would have thought that that would have been my pathway to recovery? And with that, I pass. Thank you, Anita. And thank you to everyone who has shared. We will now close with a reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Diane B. please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Good morning, everyone. This is Diane B., Recovered Compulsive Eater from New York. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. 
see to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.